This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. At 7.15 on the morning of June 30th, 1908, shopkeeper Semyon Semyonov was sitting on the front porch of his trading post in Vanavara, Siberia. The summer sun rose early and set late in that part of the world. With only a few precious months of warm weather before snow blanketed the landscape, Semyon wanted to take full advantage of the sunlight before opening his shop for the day. As he sipped his morning tea, he noticed an incredibly bright flare of light come over the northwestern horizon. Even in the sunlight, the flash was so bright that he had to shield his eyes from the glare. By the time he looked back at the horizon, the light was gone. Semyon shrugged to himself. Strange things happened in Siberia all the time. Just the other day, he'd heard some Tungus tribesmen talking about uncovering the body of a monstrous beast that had been encased in ice. But then, Simeon felt the heat. A moment later, he heard the explosion. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. This is Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. This is our first episode on the Tunguska event, a massive explosion that decimated the forested landscape of central Siberia on June 30th, 1908. The blast from the Tunguska event was over 1,000 times stronger than the atomic bomb that was detonated over Hiroshima. Scientists have estimated that the Tunguska event blew down 80 million trees over an area of over 800 square miles, three-quarters the size of Rhode Island. Over the years, researchers have struggled to figure out what caused the Tunguska event. Even though it was one of the most massive explosions in history, scientists haven't been able to conclusively determine its origin. Although many experts believe the explosion was consistent with a meteorite collision, no impact crater has ever been found. In this week's episode, we'll examine the explosion through the eyewitness accounts of people who experienced its effects. 
will then follow the story of a Soviet scientist named Leonid Kulik, who made it his life's work to uncover the secret of the Tunguska event. Next week, we'll continue to follow modern scientists' efforts to explain the mysterious explosion. We'll examine some of the more otherworldly theories and see if they were able to explain what traditional science couldn't. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can find all previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. On the morning of June 30th, 1908, there was no warning that Earth was going to experience one of the biggest explosions in recorded history. Unlike volcanic eruptions, which are usually preceded by significant seismic activity, the Tunguska event happened with almost no warning. Few people saw the object that appeared to have caused the Tunguska event. But for those who did catch a glimpse of it, it would be seared into their memories forever. A man named Feofan Farkov, who lived 200 miles away from the explosion's epicenter, recalled, I heard a rumble and I looked southward. There was a fling in the sky, a fiery sheaf. Although it was flying swiftly, I had time to make out that the body was elongated, its head darker, and behind the head there was a flame and then a bundle of sparks. Other eyewitnesses remembered the object having a different appearance. And A. Bulyev, who lived over 800 miles from the epicenter, recalled seeing the object flying through the sky as he visited his grandmother. Suddenly, I saw a red ball with a fiery broom behind it. The ball was twice as large as the sun, and the broom emitted sparks. I cried out, Look here! Little sun is falling! All dashed to the window. The fiery ball was already going down behind the local graveyard, and then both the ball and the broom vanished. Although these accounts differed in terms of the object's shape, that may have been due to the distance from which Bulyev saw it. However, they both described its incredible speed and the fiery tail that trailed behind it. From their accounts, it seemed to be a massive meteorite streaking through the atmosphere, but nobody was close enough to see it hit the ground. While nobody witnessed the actual impact, the head of a Siberian meteorological station did see its immediate aftermath. In a letter to a colleague, he described seeing, quote, a fiery column in the form of a spear. When the column disappeared, there were heard five strong abrupt bangs, like from a cannon, following quickly and distinctly one after another. Then there appeared in that place a dense cloud. After about 15 minutes, the same sort of bangs were heard, and after another 15 minutes, it repeated as well. Perhaps the first people to experience the effects of the blast were Chuchancha and Chikarin, a pair of brothers from the area's indigenous Tungusic people. 
At the time of the explosion, Chuchancha and Chikaran were camping with some companions about 25 miles from the epicenter, asleep in their tent. Chuchancha recalled being woken up by a powerful wind. Before he could figure out what was going on, the wind knocked him into the hot coals from the previous night's fire. Outside the tent, he could hear the sound of massive trees snapping like twigs. Gathering their courage, the two brothers crawled out of their tent, but were quickly knocked to the ground by a blast of air. Struggling to his feet, Tuchancha went to make sure the rest of his companions were all right. The scene he came across was apocalyptic. The firs that covered their tents were scorched and covered in ash. The pine needles and moss that covered the forest floor were burning, filling the air with smoke. The next person to feel the explosion's effects was probably Simeon Simeonov, who had been sitting outside the trading post in Vanavara, about 40 miles from the explosion. Although the heat waves had weakened to the point where they were no longer setting everything in their path on fire, they were still extremely powerful. The shock wave knocked Simeon off his feet and shattered the trading post's windows. The waves were so strong that they rattled windows in the town of Kansk, over 375 miles from the explosion's epicenter. Although the explosion's noticeable physical effects dissipated after a few hundred miles, seismology stations as far as Washington, D.C. and Indonesia recorded mild disturbances. After the explosion, the surrounding area was showered in dirty black rain caused by sudden air condensation and the debris that was sucked up by the explosion's vortex. Although they didn't realize it, people across the European continent experienced some of the explosion's latent effects. The light was so intense that it illuminated the night sky as far as England. The morning after the explosion, the London Times ran a letter from Holcomb Ingleby of the Dormy House Golf Club on the country's eastern coast. It said, Struck with the unusual brightness of the heavens, the band of golfers staying here strolled toward the links at 11 o'clock last evening in order that they might obtain an uninterrupted view of the phenomenon. Looking northwards across the sea, they found that the sky had the appearance of a dying sunset of exquisite beauty. This not only lasted, but grew both in extent and intensity till 2.30 this morning. I myself was aroused from sleep at 1.15, and so strong was the light at this hour that I could read a book by it in my chamber quite comfortably. At 1.45, the whole sky was a salmon pink. The effect persisted over the next few days. With no way to properly explain the occurrence, people initially chalked it up to the aurora borealis, an atmospheric phenomenon that creates incredible displays of light in northern latitudes. An article in the London Times, published two days after the explosion, said, The aurora borealis was very brilliant again last night. In the higher points in the suburbs from which London can be seen, the sight was most unusual. All the outstanding features of the metropolis were silhouetted. While the aurora borealis had been observed in England before, experts quickly realized that the night sky's brightness might have been caused by something else. On July 4, 1908, five days after the explosion, the London Times published an article trying to explain what was happening. The article read as follows. 
the remarkable ruddy glows which have been seen on many nights lately have attracted much attention and have been seen over an area extending as far as Berlin. Some hold that they are auroral. Their color is quite consistent with this view, and there is also that Professor Fowler of South Kensington predicted auroral displays at this time from his observations. There was a slight but plainly marked disturbance of the magnets on Tuesday night, and this materially strengthened the auroral theory as the two phenomena are closely correlated. However, this was shaken on the following night when the glow was quite as strong, but the magnets were exceptionally quiet. But those hoping for a definitive explanation would be sorely disappointed. Back in Russia, stories about the explosion were confined to local Siberian newspapers, and many of the stories about what had been labeled the Tunguska event were wildly inaccurate. An article in Siberian Life incorrectly reported that a meteor had fallen near the town of Kansk, hundreds of miles from where the explosion actually occurred. Furthermore, the article claimed that a train full of passengers had seen it hit the ground. The train's engineer was so awestruck that he stopped the train, quote, and the passengers rushed to the distant crash site. But upon examining it closer, they realized the meteorite was red hot. According to the stories of these people, almost all of the meteorite hit the ground. It is only the tip that sticks out. It is whitish stone mass, about six cubic yards big. However, this sensational story didn't travel the 3,000 miles west to the Russian capital of St. Petersburg. The country was embroiled in a period of political turmoil. Its first parliament, known as the Duma, had just been established. The common people were in the early stages of fighting back against the autocratic Tsarist regime and were unconcerned with strange explosions in remote Siberia. As the bright light from the explosion faded from the night skies, so did people's interest. Since so few witnesses saw the explosion itself, most people only felt the Tunguska event as a mild tremor or noticed the bright displays of light in the night sky. But as the years went by, the same political turmoil that had kept news of the explosion from spreading led to a revival of interest in the Tunguska event. In 1917, the long-simmering political tensions in Russia came to a boiling point. The Tsarist government was overthrown, and the Communist Soviet Union rose in its place. But World War I and the Russian Revolution had left the country in a precarious position. In order to stay afloat, the new regime needed money fast. The Soviet government saw untapped potential in Siberia's vast expanses of tundra and forest. Specifically, it wanted to confirm the many reports of meteorites that had fallen in the region over the years. Many meteorites contain valuable platinum and iridium deposits. Even just a small amount of these metals could be worth a fortune. To that end, in 1921, the Soviet government assigned 38-year-old mineralogist Leonid Kulik to embark on a Siberian meteorite expedition. Kulik was the ideal candidate. He adored going deep into the wilderness to search for mineral deposits, and he was a fierce patriot. 
During the czarist regime, he had been jailed several times for supporting communism. If there was anyone who wouldn't mind spending months at a time deep in the wilds of Siberia searching for meteorites to fund the Soviet government, it was him. As Kulik prepared to depart, a colleague showed him the 1908 article from Siberian Life that inaccurately described the meteorite impact in Kansk during the Tunguska event. Kulik had no idea that the article was inaccurate, and he believed that he had just stumbled upon a veritable cash cow. He started scouring back issues of Siberian newspapers for any mention of the Tunguska event. Eventually, he pieced enough tidbits together to get a more accurate impression of what had happened back on June 30, 1908. However, the event had been observed over such a wide area that it was extremely difficult to judge where the meteorite had actually fallen. Kulik decided to go to the small station town of Kansk, where the Siberian Life article had erroneously reported it had fallen. It wasn't much of a lead, but it was worth following. If Kulik could find the meteorite, he'd be a national hero. Coming up, Leonid Kulik embarks on his quest to locate the Tunguska event's epicenter. But the journey is far more dangerous than he had anticipated. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. And now, back to the story. In 1921, the Soviet Union tasked 38-year-old mineralogist Leonid Kulik with locating meteorites in the far reaches of Siberia. With the government desperate for money, the valuable metals from meteorites could provide a quick cash flow. When Kulik started reading reports from the mysterious 1908 Tunguska event, he believed that he had found the answer to the government's problems. There was only one issue— Nobody had any idea where the object that caused the Tunguska event had fallen. But Kulik had to start somewhere. So in September 1921, he set off on the Trans-Siberian Railroad for the tiny town of Kansk, almost 3,000 miles away from St. Petersburg. When he finally reached Kansk, Kulik received the bad news that it was nowhere near where the Tunguska event had taken place. The station agent at Kansk told him that all he recalled from the event was feeling strong vibrations in the air and hearing a rumbling sound. A local conductor had stopped his train during the event. However, it was out of fear from the commotion, not because his passengers wanted to go look for a meteorite. 
Considering that all the conductor had felt was a rumble in the ground, Kulik deduced that the explosion must have occurred far from Kansk. But he had experienced something. To get a better idea of what had happened, Kulik circulated a questionnaire around town to see if anyone else remembered the Tunguska event. He quickly found out it wasn't the sort of thing that people forget about. Almost everyone in town had a story to share from the day of the explosion. Although 18 years had passed, they were able to recollect enough details for Kulik to get a more complete idea of what happened. Kulik's new theory was that the meteorite had fallen farther north, somewhere near the Tunguska River Basin. But getting there wouldn't be easy. A thick forest surrounded the basin, and the closest settlement was the tiny outpost of Vanavara. With winter rapidly approaching, Kulik headed back to St. Petersburg. Upon his return, Kulik immediately began to plan his expedition to Tunguska. He knew that without a more specific idea of where the meteorite had fallen, it would be a waste of time and resources for him to bushwhack through the forests of Siberia. Over the next few years, he collected more data and eyewitness accounts to get a better idea of where the meteorite had impacted the Earth. In 1924, he came across an account from a geologist who had conducted research along the Tunguska River. Kulik found out from the reports that there was a huge area of flattened forest about 35 miles northeast of Vanavara. Using the data Kulik had collected, the former head of the Irkutsk Observatory in Siberia was able to corroborate that something had fallen in the forest north of Vanavara. This scientist believed that the multiple blasts witnesses had heard back on June 30, 1908, were sonic booms from pieces of the meteorite breaking apart in the atmosphere. He believed that Kulik would come across a massive crater in the forest, two to three kilometers in diameter. Most likely, it would be strewn with meteorite fragments that had broken off the main body before impact. Kulik agreed. More convinced than ever that he'd find valuable meteorite fragments in the Tunguska Basin, 44-year-old Kulik once again set off on the Trans-Siberian Railroad in February 1927. Kulik and a research assistant traveled by train to the small town of Taishet. It was about 100 miles east of Kansk, where he had collected data during his 1921 expedition. Arriving in early March, they stopped to gather supplies and equipment before heading towards Vanavara via a horse-drawn sled. With no rail line connecting to Vanavara, getting to the explosion site would be a difficult journey. The train journey itself would take weeks, and then they would have to travel to Vanavara by horse-drawn sled. Kulik had to time his departure perfectly. If he left too early, the winter snows would make it impossible to navigate. If he left too late, the landscape would be a mosquito-plagued marshland. He needed to arrive at the dawn of spring, when enough snow had melted, but the ground underneath it was still firm. At first, the going was relatively easy as they traveled along the banks of the Angara River. But soon, they had to head into the wilderness, where the land was riddled with creeks, gullies, and steep hills. Navigating became difficult as well. Because of how far north they were, Kulik's compass had trouble orienting itself. 
The map he had wasn't much help either. There wasn't much of a reason for geographers to come to the region, and the surveying that had been done wasn't exactly accurate. Kulik began to fear that his expedition might be over before it had even begun. With supplies dwindling, he knew he had to reach Vanavara soon, or he would be forced to turn back. With his short time window, he wouldn't have the chance to try again until the next year. Thankfully, Kulik and his assistant managed to reach Vanavara at the end of March. The search was still on. In Vanavara, Kulik was able to hire a Tungusic guide named Ilya Potapovich. With Ilya's help, he was able to gather more intel from the villagers. Like the people of Kansk, they still had vivid memories of the explosion. Kulik was fascinated by the story of Simeon Simeonov, who said that the heat he felt from the explosion was so intense that he thought his shirt would burn right off his back. Kulik had never heard of heat like that resulting from a meteorite fall, but he assumed that it was due to the object's size and the energy that had been released when it hit the Earth. While the Russian villagers were eager to share their stories, Kulik was surprised to find that the Tungus who lived in Vanavara were much less forthcoming. But with Ilya's help, he was able to find out why they were so close-lipped. Many of the Tungus believed that the Siberian thunder god, Ogdi, had caused the explosion. In the form of iron-feathered thunderbirds with fiery eyes, Ogdi had cursed the land by flattening the forest and killing entire herds of reindeer. According to the Tungus, anyone who entered the cursed area would surely be struck down by Ogdi's lightning. But rather than be scared off by these stories, Kulik only became more eager to see the impact site. On April 8, 1927, Kulik, his assistant, and Ilya set off for the flattened forest. The next two days were the most difficult of Kulik's life. He had been unable to properly restock his supplies in Vanavara, and he and his assistant began to suffer from scurvy. Additionally, the spring thaw had begun, unleashing mosquitoes and turning the ground into a hazardous marsh. On April 10th, the travelers were granted a brief respite when they reached the hut of a friendly Tungusic man named Okchen. During the trek from Vanavara, their pack horses had been almost more of a hindrance than a help. Okchen was kind enough to provide them with reindeer, who proved to be much more adept at navigating the Siberian wilderness. With Okchen serving as a guide, the four men spent the next few days trudging through the thick forest. But on April 13th, after crossing the sloping banks of a nearby river, the men were greeted with an incredible sight, miles upon miles of fallen, splintered trees. Kulik could understand why the Tungus believed this area was cursed. It was as if a powerful deity had swiped their hand across the landscape, snapping thick tree trunks as if they were twigs. The tops of the fallen trees were all pointed south towards the traveling party. They were almost like massive fingers warning them to stay away. But Kulik had come too far to turn back now. He couldn't let superstition get in the way of what could be one of history's greatest scientific discoveries, not to mention a huge source of wealth for the USSR. 
The group forged ahead, picking their way through a maze of tangled tree limbs and gnarled roots. At times, they had to create a path forward with axes and machetes. Eventually, every single one of the fallen tree trunks they passed was scorched and burned. But the charred wood clearly wasn't the result of an ordinary forest fire. Kulik believed that the trees had been set aflame by the sudden, instantaneous heat burst from the meteorite explosion. Kulik summarized his theory in a report he wrote after the expedition. Quote, Before it actually hit the ground, the great swarm of meteors must have traversed 200 or 300 miles of the Earth's air. Pushed ahead of it was doubtless a giant bubble of superheated atmosphere, hotter than the blast of any earthly furnace and under the enormous pressure produced by the meteor's flight. The white-hot air blast was probably responsible for the burnt spot which surrounds the place where the meteorite lies. After several days of travel through the burned, flattened forest, Kulik began to wonder if they'd ever reached the impact crater. As they picked their way up a steep hill, he hoped that the top would provide him with a view of the epicenter. He finally reached the top. From his vantage point, he could see miles and miles of the same scorched, flattened forest. It stretched out as far as the eye could see. He described the site in his report, quote, I still cannot sort out the chaotic impression of this excursion. Above all, I cannot really take in the whole majestic picture of this unique meteorite fall. A very hilly, almost mountainous region stretches away, tens of miles towards the northern horizon. From our observation point, no sign of forest can be seen, for everything has been devastated and burned. One has an uncanny feeling when one sees 20 to 30 inch thick giant trees snapped across like twigs and their tops hurled forward many meters away to the south. Despite the daunting sight before him, Kulik was determined to keep going. But the overwhelming sight of the seemingly endless burned forest was too much for his Tungusic guides to bear. Ilya and Okchen refused to continue onward, afraid they would incur the Thunder God's wrath. Much to Kulik's dismay, the group returned to Vanavara, but Kulik believed he could try one more time before the summer thaws made the landscape completely impassable, as the tundra would be transformed into a deep, mucky swamp. On April 30th, 1927, Kulik and his assistant set out from Vanavara with new guides, who assured him that they would take him as far into the burnt forest as he wished. Instead of trying to push through the marshy forest, they decided to try navigating the rivers on wooden rafts. But this method came with its own challenges. The spring snowmelts had caused the water levels to rise, and they had to navigate several powerful rapids. Once they had taken the rivers as far as possible, they had to continue on foot without the aid of any pack animals. Forced to carry their gear themselves, it was slow going. Kulik and his guides didn't reach the flattened forest until May 20th, but Kulik refused to give up. After over a week of travel, Kulik had pushed beyond the point where he had been forced to turn around during his first attempt. He was nearing a large basin that his guides called the Southern Swamp. 
Kulik anticipated that it was where he would find the impact crater. Finally, after almost four months of travel, Kulik pushed through the final strand of broken trees and emerged into a vast bog of the southern swamp. But as he gazed across the swamp, he realized something was wrong. All he saw was an unending marshy expanse. It seemed like nothing had disturbed the ground in eons. Kulik sat down, his mind reeling in disbelief. He had come all that way for nothing. There was no crater, no meteor, and nothing to indicate that there was any proof of the theory that Kulik had spent years trying to verify. Coming up, Kulik struggles to come up with an explanation for what caused the Tunguska event. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And now, back to the story. In February 1927, 44-year-old mineralogist Leonid Kulik set off for Siberia to find the meteor that he believed caused the 1908 Tunguska event. Four months later, he finally arrived at the area where he was certain he'd find the impact site. He was sure he'd find a massive blast crater like the nearly mile-long meteor crater in Arizona or the 400-meter-deep Pingualawit crater in Quebec. However, the area known as the Southern Swamp had no trace of a crater or any other sign that an extraterrestrial object had collided with the Earth. Kulik double-checked that they'd come to the right place by circling around the entire perimeter. Sure enough, the trees that ringed the swamp were all pointed away from it. The burst of energy that had felled them must have come from the swamp. As he began to explore the swamp itself, Kulik saw more evidence of some sort of massive energy burst. In his report from the expedition, Kulik wrote, the solid ground heaved outward from the spot in giant waves. Underneath a layer of fresh moss and green vegetation, Kulik found uniformly continuous scorching, unlike the traces of an ordinary conflagration. But as Kulik explored the swamp's northwest and northeast sections, he finally made a breakthrough. These parts of the swamp were littered with dozens of circular flat holes, ranging from just a few feet to dozens of yards in diameter. Kulik believed that fragments from the meteorite had created them. However, he didn't have the equipment he needed to properly bore into the pits and search for evidence of the fragments. With summer rapidly approaching, he only had time to make a quick survey of the area before returning to Vanavara. The trek back to the small Siberian outpost made Kulik's previous struggles through the wilderness look like a casual stroll through the park. 
With only a few days' worth of food left, the group had to rely on hunting game to supplement their meager supplies. However, their intended prey wasn't exactly cooperative. Kulik's group was eventually forced to sustain itself by foraging for edible plants. They became so weak from hunger that Kulik feared they'd never make it back to civilization. But after nine days of grueling travel, they finally escaped the wilderness and arrived in Vanavara in late June 1927. A few weeks later, Kulik was back at the Soviet Academy of Sciences, ready to present his findings. He wasn't returning as the conquering hero he'd hoped he would be, but he had still made a massive discovery. Thanks to Kulik's report, an event that had been the stuff of shadowy legends finally coalesced into reality. As word began to spread of his discoveries, scientific institutions around the world sent in records of seismic shocks and air turbulence from the day of the Tunguska event. As data poured in, Soviet scientists realized that the blast had been so powerful that airwaves had traveled completely around the world, twice. What had started out as a hopeful get-rich-quick scheme quickly became a scientific mystery that captured people's imaginations across the planet. Compared to its later closed-off nature, the Soviet Union was still relatively open to the rest of the world in the 1920s, and was willing to share what it had learned. With the whole world desperate to learn more about the Tunguska event, Kulik set out on another expedition to the Southern Swamp in the spring of 1928. This time, he was also accompanied by a cinematographer to capture moving footage of the landscape. Once again, the journey proved to be quite hazardous, As with his second attempt in 1927, the expedition traveled from Vanavara via raft. As the cinematographer shot footage of a particularly dangerous river crossing, Kulik fell into the river. By a stroke of luck, his foot got caught in a mooring line. It prevented him from getting carried off in the rapids, surely saving his life. Unfortunately, it turned out to be the most exciting part of the expedition. When Kulik reached the southern swamp, he discovered that the primitive magnetic instruments he had brought were too weak to detect any traces of metal in the ground. Additionally, when he tried to excavate the circular depressions that he believed contained meteorite fragments, he wasn't able to get through the watery, boggy soil. If he wanted to properly excavate, he'd need heavy-duty boring and draining equipment. From a solely scientific perspective, this expedition might have been declared a complete disaster. But the cinematographer's presence helped convey just how massive the explosion had been. Upon his return from Siberia, Kulik hit the lecture circuit. With the haunting images of the burnt, flattened forest playing behind him, he emphasized how catastrophic it could have been if the Tunguska meteor had hit anywhere near a human population. Speaking to an audience in Moscow, Kulik claimed, had this meteorite fallen in central Belgium, there would have been no living creature left in the whole country. On London, none left alive in south of Manchester or east of Bristol. Had it fallen on New York, Philadelphia might have escaped with only its windows shattered, and New Haven and Boston escaped too. 
but all life in the central area of the meteor's impact would have been blotted out instantaneously. Of course, Kulik may have been exaggerating a bit. The people of Anavara had survived, and they were only 35 miles away from the blast. But still, it was true that if the explosion had been anywhere near a population center, it could have taken millions of lives. With Kulik drumming up publicity, a massive expedition to the southern swamp was planned for 1929. The Soviet government spared no expense. Departing in February 1929, the expedition would stay in the area for over a year and a half. They brought sophisticated excavating equipment, digging elaborate trenches and boring to depths of over 75 feet. But even in the circular depressions in the northern parts of the swamp, there was no trace of meteorite fragments. Scientists began to suspect that the waves in the ground were actually caused by the thawing and refreezing of the swamp's permafrost layer. Despite this failure to find anything, Kulik remained convinced that deep underground, he'd discover pieces of a massive meteorite weighing as much as 200 metric tons combined. Perhaps desperate to prove that the government's investment wasn't in vain, he estimated that the platinum deposits would lead to a windfall of 100 to 200 million dollars, worth almost 3 billion dollars in today's money. After Kulik's 1929 to 1930 expedition failed to uncover any evidence of a meteorite strike, scientists began to formulate alternate theories for what might have caused the Tunguska event. But Kulik refused to entertain the possibility that it had been caused by anything other than a meteorite. In the early 1930s, several astronomers proposed that the object that caused the Tunguska event was a comet, not a meteorite. This explanation would account for why there wasn't an impact crater or traces of the object in the southern swamp. Unlike meteors, comets are mostly made of ice. After the explosion, any traces of the comet would have evaporated into the atmosphere. And with the comet's relatively low density, it wouldn't have created a massive impact crater. A comet could also explain the bright light that witnesses saw in the sky before the explosion. With a long tail of streaming ice particles, it would have reflected in the atmosphere and created quite the glow. But Kulik wasn't so sure. To this day, there's been no record of a comet colliding with Earth. Second, if a comet had caused the Tunguska event, it would be bright enough to be visible for half the planet before entering the atmosphere. Third, it would have had to be an exceptionally large comet to remain intact for long enough to cause the explosion. Convinced his meteorite theory was correct, Kulik spent most of the 1930s doggedly trying to find evidence in the southern swamp. He realized that observing the area from the ground was proving fruitless. To get a better understanding of the impact site, he needed a bird's eye view. During his massive 1929 expedition, a road between Vanavara and the southern swamp had been cleared, and a small airstrip was built near the village. In 1938, Kulik was finally able to charter a plane to conduct aerial photography of the site. The photographs of the area showed a 20-mile blast radius, with the flattened trees forming an almost butterfly-like shape. 
The blast pattern was consistent with that of a meteorite strike. So where was the crater? After examining the photos, one of Kulik's colleagues, E.L. Krinov, came up with an explanation that Kulik had never considered. Quote, There is only one possible explanation that removes the contradiction, i.e., that the meteorite did not explode on the surface of the ground, but in the air at a certain height above the swamp. It was an intriguing theory. Kulik mentally kicked himself for not coming up with it himself. But just as he was preparing to mount another expedition to the southern swamp, the Soviet government was forced to divert its funds to an urgent situation. In June 1941, Hitler's troops invaded Russia. With the Nazis looking almost invincible, the Soviet Union had to dedicate all its resources to the war effort. Further research on the Tunguska event would have to wait until hostilities ceased. Tragically, Kulik would never get the chance. Although the 59-year-old scientist wasn't expected to fight, Kulik was a devoted patriot. He joined a volunteer fighting unit called the Moscow People's Militia. While fighting on the front lines, he was wounded in the leg and captured by the Nazi army. Kulik contracted typhus while he was imprisoned in the Nazis' Spas-Deminsk POW camp. He died on April 24, 1942. But after the fighting ended in 1945, others picked up Kulik's mantle in the quest to uncover the truth about the Tunguska event. Although the war had deprived them of Kulik's expertise, it had also provided them with a new theory. Most researchers were convinced that some sort of interplanetary body had caused the explosion. But one scientist couldn't help but notice that the Tunguska event explosion was strikingly similar to the effects of a certain man-made weapon. The atomic bomb. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. Next week, we'll follow scientists' continued efforts to explain the Tunguska event. We'll also chart the progression of theories throughout the rest of the 20th century, with possibilities ranging from alien spaceships to chunks of antimatter to miniature black holes. We'll make sure to leave no stone unturned. For more information on the Tunguska event, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Fire Came By, The Riddle of the Great Siberian Explosion, written by John Baxter and Thomas Atkins, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer.
Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode was written by Alex Benedon and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 